2: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Chef Boyard Don't Edition. It's Wednesday, July 6th, 2022. On today's show, the black phone comes to us from House, the celebrated indie horror shop. In this one, a creepy masked man has been snatching kids off the streets of a Colorado suburb. But has the so-called grabber met his match in Finney, the soulful innocent, now entrapped in his basement. And then Hulu brings us the TV show The Bear about a Chicago working-class kid who's on his way to Michelin star glory when he returns home to run his family's neighborhood slop joint. It stars Jeremy Allen White as Carmine, the no longer prodigal son. And finally, yeah, yikes, Chef Boyardee in a pre-made pie crust. Uh, disgusting food videos are going viral. We will discuss. Joining me today is Jamel Bowie, uh, Slate alumnus and, of course, columnist for the um, New York Times. Hey, Jamel, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Always uh, just superb to have you. And Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. <laughs> wow. Does that
0: sound one? <laughs> that was
2: so... That was, that was on-brand... Dana plus a lot of extra. That's like a lot of (laughs) wand. You okay? I actually
0: don't even feel one about our topics this week. I'm really excited to jump into the conversation. I don't know. I'm just a bad greeter. I'm sorry. I'm waking oh, up.
2: No, you're a terrific one. You went hard on July 4th, as you do every year, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know me. It's just a patriotism bender around here.
2: All right. Well, well, let's dig in. The Black Phone, it's a small, nicely observed indie horror pick. Uh, the Grabber, so-called Grabber, is a child snatcher at loose in a small mountain town. Uh, His mini crime spree has disappeared about a half a dozen kids and, of course, cast uh, a pall over, well, you know, everything, of course. Uh, Young Finney is a sweet, soulful boy, target of bullies, one of whom is his own broken down father, a widower drunk and the ultimate moral coward, a physical abuser of his own children. Genre-wise, the inevitable happens. Finney is the latest kid to be snatched. But what if it's this kid with the aid of the mysterious voices calling him on a seemingly disconnected black phone is the one that got away? The film stars Mason Thames, Thames, T-H-A-M-E-S, I'm not sure, but what a wonderful name is, Finney, Madeline McGraw as his younger sister, whose dreams may actually be clairvoyant insights into the grabber's whereabouts and the M.O., and Ethan Hawke, as the masked perpetrator himself. All right, let's listen to a clip. In the clip, we're going to hear the grabber played by Hawk. He's talking to Finney, who he now has locked in his soundproof basement. Uh, I should say, also, throughout most of the movie, the grabber is wearing a series of incredibly spooky masks. Uh, let's listen to the clip. I know you're scared and you want to go home. I'll take you home soon. Sister
3: i got to be upstairs for a while. Something's come up. What? Never mind what. Someone's coming. I'll scream. If someone's upstairs, they'll hear me. With the door shut, no one can hear anything down here. I soundproofed it myself. So shout if you like, you won't bother anyone. If you try to touch me, I'll scratch your face. And whoever's coming will see and ask why.
2: This face? Mm, Of course, he's indicating that creepy, creepy mask. Dana, uh, you're the film critic. I'll start with you. This comes to us from, it's directed and co-written by Scott Derrickson. He directed a Doctor Strange uh, movie, but also he's done uh, indie horror stuff. What would you make of this uh, offering?
0: I mean, I did not expect to like this movie that much, largely because of the advertising campaign, which has been ubiquitous over the past few weeks on buses and so forth. And it's just this big poster of the mask that you just referred to. Admittedly, a very creepy mask, which I did not realize until reading uh, notes, some prep for this show it was designed by Tom Savini, the great gore master of many zombie movies past. It's a very effective mask, but the the advertising campaign indicates that it's going to be all about Ethan Hawke's villain. And I was just afraid, for one thing, that it would have sort of Joker vibes, you know, that it would be a self-indulgent performance, that we would just have to witness a lot of gore in order to watch Ethan Hawke kind of try to outact himself and be a villain, which he rarely is. In fact, this movie is scarcely about that character at all. He's a very effective, scary guy, as you can hear in that scene. He uses his voice in particular, which is a not that gravelly voice, but sort of a high-pitched one really effectively. But it really is a movie all about the kid and about kids in general, about that boy, the, the main character, about, well, we can get into this and decide how much we're going to spoil, but about other boys who were earlier kidnapped by the grabber and about the little girl who is the kidnapped boy's younger sister and is trying to, to help find him. And I thought it was such an effective movie about childhood. In fact, I sent my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter, to see the movie with her friends after seeing it. Because I thought, if I had seen this as a teenager, you know, if, you, if you're if you a teenager that can handle some horror, I would have really, really loved it. Because it really is, in a way, about, um, you know, the the younger generation outwitting the older and kind of mm. figuring the way out of a, of a tough situation. It's also very short, which I really, really appreciated. Sort of small and just like a dirty, gritty horror movie of this style that I grew up watching and and that I love.
2: Mm, All right. Well, Jamel, Dana was, it's fair to say, I think, way more than pleasantly surprised by this movie. What about you?
3: You know, I didn't go into the movie with any particular expectations, and there were things about it that I really did enjoy. But uh, when I finished it, I was sort of I, I, I said to my friend who I saw it with, um, I said that it was weird and not weird and sort of like it's crazy and it's you know not not weird in that sense, but weird in that like it felt just sort of totally off to me that like there is there is this um real dazed and confused energy. Uh, throughout, and there, there's even. I mean, my favorite, my personal favorite sequence. This isn't the spoil, spoiler. My personal favorite sequence in the movie involves some sort of like tough teenager who, like you know, beats the crap out of someone who interrupts him um, getting a high score in a pinball game, and so sort of like all that dazed and confused '70s childhood stuff. I thought was really effective, and then when it became a kind of horror thriller, I did not find that as effective. And the two of them juxtaposed together, I just thought was odd. And I'm not sure mm. that it works necessarily.
2: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I'll break the tie here by saying I thought it was t- terrific. And I think it's interesting that we've kind of fastened on different parts of it, because to me, it's the central relationship is between the two siblings, Finney and his younger sister, uh, uh, Gwen, I think her name is. Uh, that kid is, they're both, beautifully portrayed as sensitive kids and trapped in an abusive household for whom school ought to be an escape from this hothouse of like violence and recrimination presided over by their father, but actually just turns out to have all the horrible psychodynamics of bullying. And then those psychodynamics are intensified to the hundred thousandth degree in the basement situation. And so you've been set up to really identify with Finney, the potential victim, to along with like this Odysseus-like pang for his reunion with his sister, his one soulmate, his real rock in the world. Um, And also what he has to do in order to potentially escape requires him becoming the kind of person who hasn't yet learned how to stand up to the bully. I mean, it's a movie about bullying that actually took the time to show you what amity and real love and healthy psychology look like when they occur between two people in a truly reciprocal relationship. I thought it was just weirdly well done. And Jamel, it's interesting. I thought in some ways it failed as a genre movie but succeeded as a almost as a different kind of movie. It's based on a short story and it feels like it is, which is is a flaw. We're used to I think movies being balked out often quite creatively in the second act, right? This is a movie with classic second act pro- problems. The setup is beautiful. These people become very real real to you very quickly. I actually thought the resolution was quite good, though there were moments when I was afraid it was going to be pat or trite. And it just kind of delivered for me. And in between, it's thin. Like, that's where the gruel gets thinnest, no doubt about it. Dana, you acknowledge that, right? Like, like all of the kind of intermediary tasks that, that bulk out a classic second act where you try and fail, try and fail, try and fail, but in the course of it, cumulatively grow and you become the hero who can succeed in the third act. Like, that doesn't exactly happen here. But you and I, I think, Perceive this as a virtue.
0: I mean, I guess that's true, but I couldn't get into it without spoiling, but I can actually think of several examples that counter that. I mean, to to be cryptic about it, the calls that come in on the black phone, Mm -hmm. right, slowly build the kid's ability to try to figure a way out of his situation. True, And. Yeah, I, I would agree that the middle is some, maybe somewhat underwritten, but I think we just see for this podcast and just in general as a critic, I see so many things that are overwritten and overdetermined. And I was this made me think of Stranger Things a lot, too, the TV show, which I don't follow, but we did talk about the first season of on this show. And my first thought on coming out of this movie was it's sort of got the Stranger Things remit done in under two hours (laughs) instead of, you know, four seasons or whatever we're into with Mm -hmm. that show now. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is less nostalgic than Stranger Things. It's from what I know of that show, darker and grittier and... The vision of the 70s that Derrickson delivers is not at all a sort of um, bathed in a licorice pizza kind of glow about the 70s. In fact, it makes it look outside of the serial killer part like a dangerous time to be alive. I thought some of the early stuff about the school fights, the after school fights where, you know, kids gather to watch one kid beat another up were um, were really dark because the, the world really that dark. they presuppose is still the world that we live in. You know, even outside of of the basement of of this killer, and mm. that might again be true to the world that it takes place in. It's not an after school special. You know, no. I don't know. The more we talk about it, the more I like this movie. And part of what I like about it is that very slightness. You know, that I guess could be could be seen as a fault. I remember at a certain moment. It, Toward the climax of the movie when the action is starting to heat up, thinking, if this movie takes twenty more minutes to end, I'll kind of like it. But if it can get it done in ten minutes, I'm gonna love yes. it. And it got it done in about eight minutes after I had that thought. You know, and yeah. there's something about that compactness that really impressed me.
3: I agree with that. Like I think I think the compactness of the movie really works in its favor. I don't have a problem with the fact that it is Somewhat shaggy in the beginning, like, again that's the stuff I like the most. Um, I don't know, I think I would have preferred a movie that were either much more of the childhood movie, uh, 70s childhood, brutal. I mean, you, you, Dana, you mentioned those fights, but like those fights were, were, were these weren't just like kids pushing each other, like kids were beating the shit out of each other, um, in a really kind of striking way, uh. If there was sort of more of that and almost less of the uh, you know the captivity at the hands of Ethan Hawke, I think I would have preferred the movie a bit more. I think I would have preferred the movie a bit more if the relationship with the between Finney and his sister, which is pretty, is strong and fleshed out, like amounted more to to anything in terms of the resolution of the film, and I, that's not necessarily a bad thing, I think there's something to be said for uh, plot and story elements that don't sort of tie tightly together with everything, but also, for a movie as compact as it is, it was sort of like strange to feel at the end that, oh, we had this entire um, aspect of the characters in the story that is seemingly is just there for you know, uh, the edification of the characters themselves, which again, is fine, but it doesn't really amount to much in terms of the, the, the dilemma mm-hmm. for Finney.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. I, you've identified something about the movie. We can't talk about it more without spoiling. That's really true. Like it, there's like a kind of non payout. Um, let's talk a little bit about Ethan Hawke in this movie. He's had this interesting late career, mid to late career Renaissance. Uh, he's, he meant to be really, like, maximally sinister in this film. What do you make of him as this kind of a malevolent figure? I thought he was
3: great. You mentioned earlier that he used his voice and sort of pitched his voice up. And I thought that was exactly the right... Approach like he seems to play this character as like a weird, sad guy, not in a way that engenders sympathy, but in the way mm-hmm. that's just sort of like if you saw him on the street, you just go, you'd cross the street. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. want to be near that dude. Um, and I thought that was great. He has a line reading at some point, where he, I think, and I think it may have been the one we, we use where he's like, you know, everything's messed up, I have to go upstairs. Um, that I thought was just hilarious and terrific and kind of gets got kind of exactly. Exactly the essence of of the character. So I thought Ethan Hawke was great. I think this like Hawkeson's, Ethan <laughs> Hawkeson's <laughs> oh, um, <yes. laughs> is uh, has been terrific. I've really enjoyed seeing him and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so I'm 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 here for him.
2: Brilliant. Okay, I, Jamel, one more very quickly as by way of going around the table. Friend of you says, what should I go see it or not? Yes or no? What are you doing? Oh, that's tough.
3: I would uh, I would say. Yes. And I'm thinking about the personal review I gave it and I I may need to like nudge it up just a bit. I would say yes, but like go on like an afternoon and you're paying cheaper movie ticket prices.
2: There you go. Perfect. Dana, you and I are pretty hearty thumbs up. Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, as I as I said, I saw I mean I sent my daughter to see it about two hours after I saw it. You know, not urgently saying this is something you absolutely must do, but she was in the mood to see a movie. I said, Hey, how about a sort of scary, gritty, stranger things? And, you know, she was she was into it. Yeah, I would definitely send people to see it, although if you're some kind of horror connoisseur, you might find it a little bit underbaked.
2: I thought it was really relative, certainly relative to my expectations. I thought it was a, was a gem. For what it's worth, check it out. It's the Good black child bone. acting,
0: too. As somebody who was just on this very show mean to a child actor only weeks ago, <laughs> 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 I think both the, the boy and the girl who plays his little sister are excellent and they're really well-written child characters that aren't generic, imperiled infants. I, yeah, agree.
2: I, I agree. Excellent. I, I love it when we have intelligent fence-sitting of a kind on the show. It allows our... Listeners, I think, to email in and, and, and not just one way or the other. All right, the black phone, check it out. Let's move on.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch subject to credit approval terms apply
2: All right before we go any further this is typically in our show where we discuss business Dana what uh, what do we got
0: Steve, now that we have capped entries for the Summer Strut Edition, we cannot take any more songs. You cannot imagine how many songs we got, and we're very grateful for them. But that leaves us with only one item of business this week, which is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, a listener named Andrew wrote in with a really smart, really interesting question about how we perceive the relationship between politics and culture on our show, and just in general in our world. Um, Are politics upstream of culture? Is culture upstream of politics? What kind of feedback loop do they produce with each other? And how do you really extricate the two? It was a really well-phrased question, better than I just phrased it in my summary. We will read that out loud in our Slate Plus segment and attempt to answer it. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can, of course, look forward to that conversation at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. As you know, if you're a Slate Plus member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and lots of other shows have those too. You get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate, so you will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. And most important of all, you support us, our magazine, our work, the work of all our wonderful colleagues and the journalism they do. These memberships matter a lot for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once more, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show.
2: All right. Well, The Bear, it's on Hulu. It's a TV show with a setup that will not seem especially fresh. A working class Italian kid makes good in the world of haute cuisine. He was, I think, at 11 Madison, they say at one point, a sous chef. That's as haute as it gets, as as far as I understand it only to return home and take over the family greasy spoon. Yada yada, right? But the bear is being praised as a wildly fun and fresh take on the inner dynamics, familial and surrogate familial that run through such an enterprise uh, as a rich and funny portrait of its host city, Chicago. The show comes from the mind of uh, Christopher Storer, known for production credits on *Ramy* and Eighth Grade. Uh, it stars Jeremy Allen White as Carmine Eben Moss, Bacharach as his foul-mouthed, no bullshit, all bullshit cousin, and uh, Ayo Itibiri as Sydney, who's coming in to help tighten the ship. Uh, in the clip, you're going to hear Carmine. He's trying to navigate his new role as restaurant owner and head chef, but his uh, kitchen staff seems, uh, to put it mildly, a little resistant to the new boss. Let's listen.
0: Tina, Carmine, Ibrahim, what is beef? It's in the oven. Tina, can you start a new chart in there for me, please, Chef? I need my fennel first, Jeff. Carmen, Ibrahim, I need my beef, then I do onions, then I do potatoes, we have sisters. Aye, but you could punch him, blanch him, freeze him, fry him before the beef, right? Don't mess up our please. I'm not messing anything Porter. up. Chef, no, please, please do not touch that. This is the one time you listen to me, please do not touch that. That's been going for 12 hours, okay?
1: That's my pot, Jeff. Everybody knows. That's her pot. That's
0: Aye, pot. use another pot, please, chef, Porter. all right? Corner!
3: Marcus, I need a double order of bread today, okay, chef? Come on, Carmen, I've been telling you for the past two weeks the mixer's fucking, I gotta do all this by hand. Plus, Tina keeps messing with the temperature and it's fucking on my rise. Tina, I know you speak English. Listen, Marcus, we're not meeting dailies, all right? Vendors are cutting us off. I don't have the money to fix it right this second, but I will get you a new mixer,
0: okay? I promise you. Carmen, buzzer! All right, that's the beef. Come on, give me a hand.
2: All right, Jamel. Let me start with you. It's uh, as I said, you know, it, there's nothing unexpected about the setup, at least uh, to my mind. But um, in the execution, maybe made uh, fresh. What do you think?
3: I really enjoyed it. I've watched three episodes so far, and I have enjoyed each and every one of them. I think the show, and I, I'm, I'm kind of, I can be kind of a cheap date sometimes. I think the show um, got me immediately when its opening music, musical cue was the song "New Noise" by the Refused, a Swedish hardcore band that I really mm. love. <laughs> And uh, I was sort of like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm dialed into what this show is trying to do immediately, and I have, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed watching it thus far. It's sort of, it's quickly paced, which makes sense for the setting. Um, quickly paced, lots of sort of like you know, loving shots of food, but also sort of quick cutting between all the various people in the kitchen. Um, and and I think that uh, that just sort of like hits some chemicals zone in my brain that I enjoy. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. And uh, everything seems real. I don't know. The thing the thing about it is that the the environment seems and the characters and the dilemmas they seem real. Um, you know, uh, Carmine's uh, cousin. I, I'm not sure what their familial relationship actually is, but his cousin, that seems like a real dude to me. Uh, uh, not someone I necessarily know, but like someone I can imagine. And the same goes for. Um, sydney played by io at she seems like a real person that i might actually know yeah it also helps that i've watched three of those up ep- the three episodes while, while like prepping lunch for my wife and <laughs> myself so it's sort of i was just like in the right headspace too
2: yeah uh dana um so uh, you know totally you could argue stale setup but authenticity and pace throughout uh says jamel what do you think
0: yeah, the pace is, I think, the most remarkable thing about this show, in a way, because it moves so quickly. And yet, as Jamel was saying, it gets a lot done in terms of establishing character. You know, these main characters that we mentioned who are all really well-drawn But also all the secondary characters in the kitchen, the pastry chef, an amazing character who starts to figure more largely later on in the season. Everybody is really deftly sketched, but the episodes almost feel too short. Some of them are only, I think, 20 minutes long. I mean, they really careen, you know, and the editing is is kind of careening, too, as you could hear in that clip. Sometimes that's a little bit too fast moving for the plot. I think this movie is stronger on characterization and on dialogue scene by scene than it is on wholly establishing exactly what's going on. I mean, there is no backstory to, to a lot of these characters to a degree that is refreshing, for one thing. I mean, it's it's not flashbacks every two minutes and over-explaining everything, but some things are almost sort of under-explained. Like this this place, this restaurant that's apparently been going for generations, it belonged to the parents of the main character played by Jeremy Allen White, is, is this kind of old-school sandwich place. I'm not familiar enough with Chicago food to know what... Establishments—it's supposed to be based on or, or riffing on in some way, but it's not quite established exactly what it you know what kind of um, life did they have growing up with restaurateur parents? What were their parents like? What happened to their parents? I mean, apparently they're both dead, but we don't know how old the kids were or when that happened. There's these three siblings. I mean, I don't want to get into the whole background of it, but. I could, use, I, I could have used a little bit more flashback or exposition about exactly how we got to this point in the, the evolution of the restaurant because it's so chaotic when we first join, you know, at this moment that, that the main character is coming to take over that you're not quite aware why it was so successful for all this time or, mm. or how it continued to function. Maybe the next season will bring about some of that. I don't know about you guys, but I found this addictive enough that I watched all eight episodes. <laughs> I've mm. seen all of the bear and my first feeling on, you know, the last frame of the the bear was where's more bear? <laughs> I want more bear. Oh, it's not be a perfect show, but it's wildly addictive in large part. We haven't really talked about it, but I think Jeremy Allen White, the kid who plays Carmi, the main character, is just fantastic. His face is wonderful. He's like, yeah. he's he's got a face and not just a look, but a kind of demeanor yeah. that's out of an old school he's like somebody who would yeah. be in an old Scorsese yes. movie almost yes. or Cassavetes you know what i mean i, I was
3: thinking you, an altman movie he's yeah, like a, altman, he seems a face out of an altman movie right uh, and the, I, and the
0: show kind of seems built around that in a way i mean there's a the, it's not let's say it's not to the level of a great altman movie but it's got that um yeah. overlapping dialogue and rapid editing and that slightly disjointed feeling of a cassavetes or an altman era production and that's fresh feeling in itself on tv
2: no I'm, I'm totally with you he's got that like elliot Gould, donald sutherland dustin hoffman era like these yeah. guys are movie stars it was shocking to the world that they could be and of course they they were combined with like the tom cruise 1980s bod you know so it's like the 70s face the 80s bod um he's he's just ca- he's captivating the camera loves him i love him This show you're right dana addictive is exactly the right word i can't get enough of it i resent the shit out of the fact that i had to stop watching in order to make this podcast um <laughs> I, I i'm in a blow i'm on a uh, jamel like you i got through three episodes i can't wait to blow through four through eight it's quick in part because of like this in medius race like we're going to throw you into the kitchen it's disorienting it's fast-paced it is always on the brink um and this is what it's like and you and you feel that authenticity but it also has these first of all tiny beautifully observed details that are so quick you can miss them because it's like keep up keep up keep up pay attention not to interrupt but for for
3: example and this kind of gets to dana's point about but the lack the lack of backstory but also i think this this Whereas well for the show there's a scene i think in the second episode where um carmine's talking to his sister on the phone and she's making dinner and there's a, just a quick the camera moves to show what she's making she's making a chicken picada, and it looks beautiful and you're like oh. that tells you so much about her and their her. family right sort yeah. of like oh the, all the kids get food
2: yeah like it, even if exactly. they're not in the business yeah exactly and there's another one jamel i'll give you they're, they're laying he, it's like i think right Really early on in episode one, he's laying out the sides that he's going to serve that night, and and they're just in little plastic to go type containers. And he takes a little napkin and he does that thing that servers do at like you know Eleven Madison or or Noma or whatever, where they just wipe the plate clean along the perimeter. And he does it with the little. It's like a little Michelin touch in the middle of this joint and it's it's just perfect it just shows you who this guy is and what his standards have been um there's an oliver platt sighting there's just not enough oliver platt in my life and uh that scene with him is marvelous that's a great character the soundtrack it it goes everywhere and as someone who hates wilco i was even like god damn like that (laughs) fucking song works there right and they picked the most transcendent um not only the most transcendent Van Morrison song, St. Dominic's Preview, but the transcendent live performance from the early 70s. It just the pace and energy off the charts. Like, I, I, you know, I know they're going to mystic pizza me here. I think I strongly suspect they're going to mystic pizza me here. I don't care. I want it to happen so badly.
0: I'm not sure what Mystic being Mystic (laughs) Pizza indicates. I I saw that movie too many decades ago. What What are you talking about?
2: The setup makes you think that the snobby food critic is going to come in in the end and have a bite of the sandwich and like that look of revelatory joy on his face and on and on and everyone walks away happy. They're not going to do it, but but that's how trite the setup is. But I just whatever they do, I don't care. We should say, Jamel. Also, there's the shadow over the whole thing. I'm curious to hear how you rate its authenticity of the dead of the dead brother, uh, Michael, who um, I thought they handled it well. It's just yet another element that can be sort of slapped dashedly thrown in there for pathos and and just seems lazy. I didn't strike me as lazy, but what do you think? Yeah, it didn't strike me as lazy either. I think
3: I think you actually get something that is very true about this show, which is that it does have a lot of seemingly seeming cliches but I think it's executed at such a high level i mean not unlike the food in the show right sort of like a a, a italian beef sandwich is not you know it, it's not there's not that much to it um but you know executing it at a high level can make it something great and and likewise the show seems does have quite a few cliches in it um uh, but the show itself it, 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 it ex- executing its it's sort of vision at such a high level that you can kind of look past them and it doesn't really it doesn't really bother you uh, all that much. And and the the dead brother hovering over all that is another one of those cliches. And it doesn't he he's brought in actually quite sparingly. Again, only three episodes, only seen three episodes. But after the first episode, he's not really sort of. He's not there all that much. He's sort of like, you know, things happen, people talk, their conversations that kind of like raise his specter again, but it's not as if there's like a picture of the guy in the kitchen looming over everyone.
0: There is a moment when we see him in a flashback, and I don't think this is revealing too much. The show is very light, possibly too light on flashbacks, and we only get to glimpse the brother briefly, the the, the dead brother who handed his restaurant down to his little brother. But when you do, he's played by John Bernthal, which is a pretty big actor to get for such a small role. And it's such a smart move to get somebody like that because if you picture John Bernthal's face, it also comes from that world, yeah. right? I mean, it's yeah. very much from that kind of like new Hollywood world of, of a sort of mug, you know? And, uh, and he seems very believable as this brother who would be so charismatic that he could hold this shambling restaurant together with just sheer force of personality.
3: Can I, can I say just one thing on the point about sort of these faces looking like they're from the 70s? Actually, it's two things. The first is that I I'm just a sucker for any media, any TV show or movie um, that is about people do like executing a craft, mm. whether or not that whether that's cooking, whether that's journalism, whether that's you know, and this gets to the, the to your point, Dana, about um, you know '70s New Hollywood, what whether that's being a you know a a really intense strip club owner. I'm thinking of the killing of a Chinese bookie, which is what this show kind of reminds me of in some ways. Um, so it's sort of like the combination of those two things is just sort of like manna from heaven for me. I'm just like a happy camper, um, watching it.
0: Oh yeah. I thought about Cassavetes a lot watching it, but I didn't think specifically of killing a Chinese bookie. And that's so perfect because it is also about a very shambling business, right? right. That's always on the verge of falling apart, but it's being run lovingly by this incredible craftsman. I do have a question and maybe this goes out to Chicago listeners, but when I was watching this with my partner, we were confused by the nature of this restaurant. Like, it seemed somewhat incoherent that there would be this place that would have both these very kind of, you know, just working class beef sandwiches. It seems to be, it's called the original beef of Chicagoland, right? It's just this very old school basic place But then they also have a pastry chef who's crafting these incredible chocolate cakes with orange zest on top. And there's just there seem to be these fancy things going on in the corner. And this is separate from the fact that, you know, this this four star Michelin chef is coming in to run the place. We're talking about like the extant menu on this beloved Chicago institution just seems to be strangely unbalanced. And I kind of can't imagine What place it's supposed to be modeled after? So, if anybody knows a place like that, tell me both, so I can relieve my um, my curiosity and so I can go eat there next time I'm in Chicago.
3: Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm obviously not a Chicago person, but I mean that does remind me of you know there's a beloved local place in Charlottesville that closed down. You know, it's been it's been years now. Um, but it was the kind of, you know, it was both sort of like a meet and three, but also they would occasionally do sort of like, you know, fancy stuff. And then, then they would also do great pastries. And it kind of just like it was a little bit of everything. And that might actually explain why it went on there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, right. Um, like it,
0: Nobody knew who who ate there. And I guess that's part of the story of this, of this show, is that they're sort of trying to redefine what the restaurant is. But it is supposed to be this ongoing institution that people line up outside every day for these sandwiches. And I kind of wished at the beginning there had been a little bit more of an establishing of like, here's what the menu is now, so that we know when Carmi comes in mm. and starts to change it, what those changes mean.
2: Okay. Well, three really enthusiastic thumbs up. And I'd love, love to hear from Chicagoans about the authenticity of the show and like, place for us in the culinary landscape this restaurant anyway uh it's the bay arts on hulu check it out we uh we all loved it moving on All right, well, there's a video called Easiest Dinner Hack Ever, exclamation point, exclamation point, many exclamation points. It's uh, earned, I guess is the word, 42 million views. It's basically a home cook, seems like maybe a suburban mom, I don't know. Um, She she makes what effectively amounts to a Chef Boyardee slop pie. She starts with a couple of cans of Chef Boyardee, some pre-shredded mozzarella, Pre-packed, pre-shredded mozzarella, uh, a store-bought pie crust in the already in the tin, and then she takes some. She begins mixing those together, and then the uh, uh, the the pièce de résistance here. She lays out some Wonder Bread, uh, slathers it in butter, and then she just powders it in uh, garlic powder, and then. She presses her, I'm sure I didn't dream this. I'm pretty sure I didn't dream this. She just presses her forearms down on this <laughs> Wonder Bread.
1: Maybe just kind of flatten them out like this. Perfect. Really get that
0: powder in there. Awesome.
2: Before Play stacking it and cutting off the crust, okay. because as she assures us.
0: No child wants to eat crust. I
2: don't pops care. it all in the oven. And out comes this, what to even call it. But of course, social media went crazy for this. Uh, inspired all kinds of derision. Um, Jamil, I'm going to start with you. You are a man of many, many parts. Two of them are, um, cooking and being the one genuinely likable man on social media. And you bring them, the two together quite well. Uh, we found your anti-self here. What on earth is going on here? What did you make of this trend of disgusting food videos garnering billions and billions of views? So I have a TikTok,
3: and one of the things I do on my TikTok is you can do this thing called duetting where you it shows one video on one side of the screen and then you kind of can comment on it. And so I've taken this sort of doing that with some of these food videos because they are really quite baffling. And it's hard sometimes to know which ones are like a bit, you know, like someone actually doing something terrible to food for like, you know, to be to become viral. Um, and which ones are someone sincerely making something that they think is great and is actually sort of kind of terrible? Um, and I, I I think I mean, I think for viewers, there's sort of like the same, um, you know, fascination and disgust that comes with watching. Any kind of horrific thing happening, like watching a popular genre of video on YouTube, is like you know someone like popping pimples, right? And sort of those sorts of things. Um, and I think it's the same the same kind of urge. It's sort of like this is terrible and looks horrible, and you kind of can't turn away. Um, but there, I mean, there, I think I think it, 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 a huge portion of. TikTok and similar social media is people just like, is people making bad food and people watching other people make bad food. And I couldn't fully explain to you what is so appealing about it, but it is in a weird way, very appealing. I'm thinking of one I watched as someone making a pasta dish that was just sort of like, like bland and sort of it had, like, you know, pasta and cheese and, like, you know, gray-looking chicken and uh, all sorts of things thrown in that just was, like, why would you... And it seemed, like, sincere. It didn't seem like a joke. It seemed like this is, like, this is, yeah, this is good eating to me. And it's sort of, like, I don't understand anything about this dish or, like, anything about
2: your taste buds. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. it Jamel it puts his... Dana puts his finger on something I hadn't quite thought of, but it's this whopping discrepancy between listen whatever you get up to in the intimacy of your own kitchen to satisfy your appetite within reason is cool it's like that's the you know your prerogative but to then be proud of it in this way and platform it to the entire universe it's that's what you're watching more than the making of like you know fish in a coffee maker you know it's it's you're watching someone's apparent total lack of self-awareness or like warholian capacity for irony so deep and pervasive there's no discrepancy between sincerity and inauthenticity anymore i don't know anyway i'm blabbing because i'm mystified basically sort me out
0: I mean, I think that distinction is actually important. It's crucial, whether these these things are being sincerely shared as somebody's cooking tip that they enjoy in the privacy of their own home, or whether they're just perverse trolling, trying to gross people out and get views. That's a hugely important distinction that to me goes from giving it some degree of fascination. Although personally, I would never watch someone popping a pimple on a video. And these just gross me out so much, I could hardly watch them for the purposes of research. But Especially if, as seems to be the case with most of these, like the spaghetti pie lady, if these people are just trolling and all they're trying to do is, you know, gross people out with stuff that they would never eat in their lives, then, I, I don't know. I just feel pranked and, and bored by the whole phenomenon. Like it's very, very different if you know if we're exchanging food lore and food culture, and then sort of like being horrified and or mocking each other's food cultures. It's something entirely different if someone is just as one of these things was. I think like baking something in a bed of nerd candies, you know, mm. so as to get likes or get shares and then when this person is asked like do you actually eat your creations they say i'm just an entertainer you know as some Mm -hmm. of these food bloggers do i don't know i mean to me that distinction between am i being trolled or am i witnessing someone's actual cooking life is a really crucial one in terms of whether I want to watch or I just feel annoyed by the whole phenomenon. And then I was thinking, Jamel, about your cereal videos. I mean, in a way, you're a practitioner of this art, but I respect your practice of it more when you have your, your cereal eats, right? What's it called? Your your Yeah,
3: it's called cereal eats, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, which we've talked about on this show. I think we did a, a Slate Plus segment about it. And watching you Plow your way through various horrifying breakfast foods is is fun watching to me because it feels like, well, for one thing, you're really eating them, right? You're not just trying to gross people out with a visual and then throwing the whole thing away when the camera is off. And I don't know it feels like you as an eater and as a cook are exploring a world of food that is horrifying yet fascinating to you. if that was what were happening in these videos, I would find them more fun and watchable. but I don't know. Just just the the cynicism of like look how gross I can be mm-hmm. and then you share it seems really annoying to me. I'm not on TikTok, but these often get autoplayed into my Twitter feed <laughs> if there's one that goes really viral and suddenly without having ever asked for it, I'm I'm seeing somebody put, you know, a dozen eggs into a giant bowl of melted Velveeta or something like that and I just I just find it annoying.
3: So so two things. One, I think there's there's um there's a guy on TikTok who I think you would actually like and he is some sort of like home cooked bake baker guy, but he cooks recipes from like mid century to early 20th century and so those are it's just interesting to watch him make these things because it's usually baked goods and he really does focus on sort of depression era um, and so it's sort of fun to see oh, what actually turns out pretty well and then what is actually sort of horrifying and you're kind of getting a glimpse of, sort of what may have been kitchen staples for Americans during this period so he's actually good to watch and it's a good combination of like genuinely informative but also like oh this is kind of gross and that's fun too um, the, the other thing Is that I think what, so having watched uh, uh, too many cooking videos on TikTok, some of which are obviously trolling, some of which are just people making food and like displaying it for the world to see and they they think the food is good or whatever. Um, um, Some of it's sort of like, oh, here's an easy thing you can make for your family that always ends up being sort of like chicken breasts and like cream cheese and like, you know, salsa and a crock pot. Um, Part of what this has revealed to me is just how like my, so I'm obsessed with food. I love cooking. Um, It's like one of my favorite activities. I spend a lot of time thinking about it and thinking about the meals that I'm going to prepare for the family and for myself. Um, And it's sort of a glimpse into the world of I think many Americans, even most Americans who like just don't care that much Mm -hmm. Um, and not in a bad way, just like don't have the time, don't have the interest um, uh, and just sort of like are just trying to like consume food, like trying to like, you know, save themselves um, and will enjoy something nice that's made for them, but they're not going to go out of their way to do it for themselves. And I think in a weird way, I found it sort of like, I found it almost sort of useful in terms of sort of like thinking about um, how people, how like a typical person might like, you know, in, in, experience food or experience restaurants or whatever um, versus a, a, an admittedly like crazy person like myself. Um, and it's sort of a thing that you can translate to like other mediums. Like it, it's useful um you know, to know that maybe the person encountering your column isn't necessarily going to be someone who like you know religiously consumes political media, but may you know just only only occasionally consume it. Don't re- doesn't really care that much about it. Um, uh, and you sort of have to like keep that person in mind. And if I feel like if I were running a restaurant, like watching these videos would actually be kind of useful for the same reason, sort of like, what what does the typical person, how does the typical person interact with and experience food? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's more like, you know, the bad pasta than it is like, you know, for, for, well, I I mentioned earlier that I watched some of the bear while making um, lunch for my wife and myself. It's, it's less like my kind of like, um, you know, (laughs) Grain bowl with like farro and Brussels sprouts and the vinaigrette or whatever.
2: Yeah, I mean, picking up on on that directly, it it reminded me, Jamel, also of all the millions or billions, really billions of of um, you know, at home hobbyist musicians who upload their cover of you know time after time or whatever. And it's it's such a wide range, and it's it's kind of it has a true beauty to it, both when someone absolutely nails it and and at the beginning of the video you think how is this person right and of course we're so conditioned by pop stardom to think of of people who can actually play and sing beautifully is looking a certain way which of course totally artificial connection um and and the most unexpected people do the most like genuinely accomplished and very beautiful covers at the same time you know, people mangle it completely or sing consistently a half note off or, you know, they're just awful. And what you think at that moment is, to me, what I take away isn't some sick schadenfreude. Instead, it's like, that person wants to make music for themselves, right? They don't want to just be a passive consumer of it. And sure, there's some amusing, you know, lack of self-awareness there. That's That's a, you know, sort of a, cheap present to give oneself as the viewer instead it's like i just like the larger principle that i extrapolate from it is one i truly believe in as a shitty at-home musician which is like i just have to make my own music i don't care how bad it is i will try not to force it on others but i i love it too much not to try to make it myself and at that moment i understand why bob dylan's you know nasal twang and three chords conduces to a kind of transcendence and why mine doesn't <laughs> let's just say but you know it's it's Dana I'll, I'll, I'll pivot it back to food a little bit by saying you know Betty Crocker didn't take off until they realized if you allowed the homemaker to add an egg then all of a sudden and it was very gendered she would feel as though she was still cooking the family meal and not just opening a package and there's that element of it too it's like we surrounded by this consumer culture of absurd plenty in which everything is pre-made for us and even our own experience of it seems to come pre-packaged in some sense and that this is this this i think kind of weirdly heroic way of fighting back against that and saying actually the 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 a, you know, the abiding human principle here is creativity, selfhood via creativity. Fuck you. I'm gonna do it, regardless of how laughable it might be to others.
0: I guess. I mean, once again, you're imputing a lot of sincerity <laughs> to these videos. I still don't I still don't hear either of you responding to just like somebody deliberately trolling you by baking potatoes within a bed of nerds. I mean, that is just that is so not true. somebody expressing their inner creativity. Yeah, but Dana After all that's, these that's, years absolutely
3: true.
2: Yes, after all these years, though, don't you know that I'm the soulful, innocent, entrapped in the basement <laughs> of consumer culture? <laughs> or at least that's how I conceive it. That's my laughable lack of self-awareness that I think I'm that person. Please.
0: I mean, I'm just going to send our listeners to Jamel's Cereal Eats. Like, if you oh, want yes. gross food done right, that's that's the place to go.
2: All right, well, we'll leave it there. It was fun, but... Uh, but oh, man, these videos, just crazy. Check them out. If someone has a theory about the ratio of prankishness to touching sincerity, we'd love to hear it. Shoot us an email. All right, moving on.
1: Hi, But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slatecom live for tickets.
2: All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have this week?
0: I am actually bursting with things to endorse this week, but I will keep it to one, although the one has sort of two prongs. So, Peter Brook, the legendary theater director, died last week at 97. He had been around for an incredibly long time. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like from as early as I remember what theater was, I would always hear about, oh, Peter Brook is directing this. Peter Brook is directing that. I myself have never seen a production directed by him. But it seemed like I was always just coming up against one, hearing about one, being in a town where some legendary show had just closed. And he did everything from, you know, Shakespeare to opera to famously, he did a version for the BBC of the Maha the Hindu epic, and he was a really revolutionary theater director in ways that I probably can't really speak to as a non-theater scholar. I mean, our beloved Isaac Butler would be would be great to, to hear on this. But I did some digging into Peter Brook over the weekend, and uh, in addition to reading a couple great obits on him, I ended up coming across this documentary called Brook by Brook An Intimate Portrait, and it's just an hour-long interview with Peter Brook, done in 2001, so 20 years ago, but he was already an older man, because he died at 97, and uh, and he's just looking back on a, on a life of directing and talking about theater and, and what it means to him. He's fantastically well-spoken. It really makes you want to dig more into his work. And then, after that, you can go on a big YouTube dive and see a lot of things, including A Complete Hamlet that he directed in 2002 with Adrian lester as hamlet that at least to go by the the comments on this video is you know one of the, the great hamlets ever so and it's a version of the play i believe that was cut down edited and sort of recast by brooke himself so go on a peter Brook deep dive is my main endorsement but you can start with brooke by Brook, an intimate portrait the one hour documentary and the adrian lester as hamlet uh, performance both on youtube in their entirety
2: yeah, uh, fabulous, Dana. I'm with you. I heard that name in my from my adolescence on repeatedly. This god of theater. I, I know so embarrassingly little, little about him. I, I can't wait to watch it. Jamel, uh, what do you have? Um, so
3: currently on Criterion Channel, there is a uh, you know, series to do. a program series. It's one of the great things about the, the app, about the service. And one of them is called In the Ring, Boxing on Screen. And it's 16 films, some of which you've probably heard of, Raging Bull, um, uh, When We Were Kings, uh, Rocco and his brothers. But one I had never heard of and recently watched and was utterly delighted by it. And the film is called Gentleman Jim. Um, it's directed by Raoul Raul Walsh, and it stars Errol Flynn. It's from 1942, and it is—it's about this, you know, working-class Irish bank teller who aspires to be a gentleman and is also a, a talented boxer and becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. And he doesn't really experience real setbacks There's like very little friction. It's sort of like it's a pretty effortless glide from sort of bottom to top, and yet. Despite the lack of, you might say, dramatic tension, it is an utterly delightful film. Errol Flynn is so charming and so fun to watch. He's obviously very athletic, and he apparently trained quite a bit for the role. And so much of the boxing on screen is just him in the ring. Um, And I don't know much of Raoul Walsh's work, but the boxing is so dynamic Uh, And and, and boxing, I think it's a very cinematic sport to begin with. Two people in a ring. It's sort of hard not to make it dynamic. But this was like the the first fight in the film. Um, I was like riveted. (laughs) It's like a very Mm -hmm. like dynamic and fun to watch uh, uh, fight. Um, And yeah, it's just like, it's a great movie. And yeah, so Gentleman Jim on the Criterion channel. Highly, highly recommend it.
2: I cannot wait. That sounds very cool. Dana, off the top of your head, Raoul Walsh, am I blanking? Is there a big one? I feel like there might be.
3: I just like opened up his page on Letterboxd, and I, I feel like a dummy now because he
2: directed White Heat and High Sierra in uh, They go. Drive yeah, by yeah. High Night. High Sierra, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah
0: he's known as a Western guy.
2: All right, I'm going to uh, endorse a kind of involving read that I can't recommend highly enough. It's an essay by timothy snyder uh uh, the historian yale historian who's come to only greater prominence it seems with every passing year in part because he's you know he wrote bloodlands in some ways the definitive book on the ukraine crisis from the world war ii era which involved uh the ukraine being a plaything between uh the Nazis and the Stalinists uh, between Russia and Germany, resulting in just an bl- absolute bloodbath. Um, he was even, you know, I mean, it's just the, the rise of Trump. He became a voice of sort of sober, um, you know, defense of the essential values of liberalism. And they had a huge bestseller in On Tyranny. You're probably familiar with him. Anyway, he has written a long, extensive, beautifully calm and in to my mind, exquisitely argued rejoinder to one of my heroes, Jurgen Habermas, the German philosopher who's i think widely regarded as the living embodiment of um of the uh, enlightenment, the one remaining i guess uh living embodiment of the european enlightenment um and Habermas, not to get esoteric, but the reason why Snyder felt compelled to issue a public rebuke to Habermas isn't because he doesn't admire him, it's because you know, Habermas's central commitment is to the idea of rational communicators coming together and that the essence of enlightenment truth is through a kind of extended uh, conversation between negotiators. And, you know, Snyder has effectively said, this is the German disease vis-a-vis Ukraine in a nutshell. This idea that endless suasion and talk and nuancing actually becomes it actually becomes a contribution to the malevolent side in a certain kind of conflict, i.e., a conflict that cannot be described in the in the traditional terms of liberalism between mutually respect respectful opponents. Of course, Putin isn't that. He's not part of a of a reasoned dialogue at all. He's a brutalist. Uh, uh, currently attempting to effectively enslave another autonomous country. And Snyder just very carefully lays out why this is a total failure of thought to, to approach this conflict in this way um, and how it's it's uh, representative, sadly, of German elites. But I, I would recommend it for an, another reason as well, which is that oddly for all of its dis- total dismantling of Habermas's reasoning and his history it's also in a way it honors the master in some sense because it itself is such a perfect example of communicative rationality it it contains no insults there's nothing ad hominem about it it's devoted it it's not a performance meant to show you what a genius Timothy Snyder is. It's not an attempt to dunk on someone or publicly humiliate them. It's an attempt to reason one's way in dialogue with someone else you would disagree with, perhaps vehemently, toward a a possible common truth. And at the same time, honoring the agency and the political dignity of the Ukrainians, I think it's a masterful performance. And I say this as someone who in some ways, I mean, with huge qualifications, but in some ways, you know, worships what Habermas's lifelong project has been. Anyway, the piece is Germans have been involved in the war chiefly on the wrong side by Timothy Snyder, and we will post a link to it on our show page. Jamal, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, as always just an absolute pleasure to talk to you
3: oh it is always my pleasure thank you for having me
2: awesome and uh dana week after week an awesome pleasure talking to you too really yes
0: fun. i wish okay. you an unwan farewell
2: <laughs> there you go uh you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page that's slate.com slash culture fest and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com our introductory music is by the composer nick bretel Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Jamel Bowie and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you soon.